I'm Angel, passionate birth worker and podcast host of the Birth Rebel Podcast. I'm bringing you a blend of heart, soul, and a bit of controversy. Join me on my podcast where I dive fearlessly into thought-provoking discussions about the most controversial topics in pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, and postpartum. I'm unmasking the truths. I'm challenging norms and sparking conversations that matter. Let's celebrate the beauty of the perinatal space while fearlessly confronting the tough questions together. Tune in for guest interviews from health professionals leading the charge into changing the perinatal space and my own expertise in diverse topics. All right, Birth Rebel, let's jump into it. Hey, everyone, it's Angel, your host for the Birth Cafe podcast. And today I have an amazing guest here that I'm so, so excited to have on the Birth Cafe podcast today. So today I have Laurel Wilson. I actually came across her information when I was doing the microbiome course through Tony. And I'm really excited to have her on here because she just has so much wisdom and so much information and just a lot of things that we should be talking about when we're talking about the long-term impacts of, you know, breast milk on infant gut and immune health. So hi, Laurel. Hi, Angel. So great to be here with you. I'm, I'm so honored to be part of your podcast and uh, get to chat with all of your friends. So yeah. uh, yeah. (laughs) How did you get like into this work? Like what made you go into breastfeeding and even the microbiome work? Well, you know, so I've been in this world for about three decades, and I think like a lot of people who come into the perinatal world, I joined it because I had had some very challenging birth experiences myself, and as part of processing my own grief and trying to heal from those events, as well as really wanting to be an advocate in the birthing space and lactation space, really led me into this, you know, multiple decade long work. And I have done so many things in this space from being a a doula to a lactation educator and childbirth educator and prenatal yoga instructor and prenatal parenting instructor to a board certified lactation consultant. And my, my focus really today is on a general woman's health and I love talking about everything that helps us to create healthy families, healthy lives. And a lot of that really is foundational to my work in the microbiome and and studying all of those great, fantastic things. That's awesome. Okay. I did not know that you were a doula. <laughs> I actually used to teach doula trainings for years. I was one of the early members of the Childbirth and Postpartum Professionals Association. So I taught doula trainings. I taught CLE, Certified Lactation Educator trainings, childbirth ed trainings, and then sort of settled into the lactation world as my my great love. So yeah, but I did, I did doula work for probably 15 years. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been in this longer than I've been alive. <laughs> I'll be turning 30 this year. So yeah. (laughs) Happy pre-birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's really cool. You're definitely taking, taking on a journey that I feel like a lot of us birth workers (laughs) take on Mm -hmm. just kind of loving the birth work and, you know, having these experiences, either they were really, really great or they were not great at all. And then kind of finding our specialty and here you are doing lactation, which is super exciting. Um, How did you actually start learning about the breast milk and the microbiome and things like that. Because I know one of the things that kind of threw me into birth work as a doula, because I was doing a lot of breastfeeding education at first, was just the connection between birth and breastfeeding and how that impacts how birth and how your birth went impacts breastfeeding. And then we talk about the microbiome and how that affects, you know, the, the infant and things like that. How did you learn all about this? Well, I'll tell you. So my very first child was born via cesarean section and it was, it had originally been planned because he was in a breech position and I had tried everything that you could possibly think of to try and get that little one to turn head down. And we were in the military. And so there were really no other options for us other than having to do a 
a planned cesarean birth, but he actually went head down in the middle of the night, the, you know, the night before my planned cesarean. So I woke up my husband and we basically, we sped as, you know, as fast as we could across the island because we were living in Guam and we wound up there. And I was so excited because I was going to get to have a vaginal birth, but I was told that my surgeon had already been woken up. And so I was having the cesarean, like it or not. And, you know, that was traumatic in itself, but then my son was born and I wound up having a lot of blood loss and we were separated for almost two days. And the naval policy was that I had to walk to him in order to see him. And I kept getting lightheaded and close to passing out in the hallway. So it just took a long time for me to get to him, which meant he did not receive my human milk for a long time. He certainly didn't get my milk as his first foods. And, you know, and then I had another traumatic experience with my, my second child. But what I really noticed as my children were growing up was really how different their, their emotional reactions to the world were, and also how their reactions to food really changed. And they really had different compositions, which of course, everyone's bio-individual, we all have different, you know, experiences in the world based on that. But it led me into this inquiry about how our prenatal and birthing environment impact our long-term health. And that led me to, to look at mindfulness. And I know you're like, mindfulness, the microbiome, where is she going here? But I was writing a book with a, with a colleague of mine, which was called The Greatest Pregnancy Ever. And I started looking at these prenatal, long-term prenatal influences. And that's when I discovered the epigenome. And essentially what the epigenome is, is all of these environmental influences that trigger our genes to either activate or inactivate. And that was mind blowing for me. And it led me on this incredible path of discovery. And if you start to go down that, you know, really Alice in Wonderland path of epigenetics, you will soon arrive at the microbiome because it is really our gut, as we know, is central to our health. And so much of our health, our immune system, our mood stability, you know, our thoughts, our behaviors, so much of this stem from our gut. And guess what we need to have in our gut for these epigenetic actions to be healthful and positive for our, our both short-term and long-term health, it's the microbiome. So, so that's really, that's a kind of a very shortened version of this 30-year path to get to this, this, you know, scientific and just, I don't know, internal inquiry that I've had about our, our health. Yeah, so. that's so fascinating. And I, I, I did this podcast episode with Dr. Trillette. She does a lot with like food allergies and things yeah, like I love that. Her. I love her free <laughs> to feed. Uh-huh. Yes, she does such an amazing job with her work. And, you know, when we're talking about like C-sections and I had two C-section babies and my son actually ended up having severe food allergies and the, they were also born early and things like that. And so I, I honestly relate to like getting up, walking all the way to the NICU to feed my baby breast milk mm-hmm. and things like that and like pumping every hour and things like that. But just like the difference in my kids' health and in their attitude, like you said, is very, very significant. And so this, even this work is very personal to me as I'm like watching my kids grow and I'm like, wow, like the microbiome has a, has a huge impact on these children. And I feel like we should be screaming this from the rooftop. Well, you know, absolutely. Because, you know, back in the day, we had this, we had this knowledge that cesarean birth really did trigger things like increased risk of respiratory illness and allergies and asthma and things of that nature. But we didn't quite know what the pathway was. And what we're now discovering is that in some of the health challenges are related to the differences in the microbiome between being born vaginally and being born, you know, surgically. So, so it's been something that, you know, the science has a long way to go and we, there's still so many things that we don't know. I often get questions like, well, what do I do? What do I do if I had a cesarean birth? And I mean, the best answer to that is if you possibly can invest in you know, breast or chest feeding, if you possibly can. 
if that's right for you and your family. That's that's the you know the best outcome for the parent and the baby. However, there are also so many other factors that because we are a whole person living in a whole environment that are going to influence our our long term health. So there's a lot we don't know. Yeah, I know nutrition definitely plays a part in that and. I, I would love to kind of talk about that, but before we do that, sure. let's back up a little bit. Yeah. And for those people who don't know, what is the microbiome and its yeah. role in immune health? Sure. So the microbiome are is a composition of bacteria and fungi and viruses and archaea, all these tiny little microbes that live on and within us and communicate with our body on a cellular level for ideally for our optimal health. Of course, we can have pathogenic bacteria and harmful bacteria invade our space, but ideally we have evolved to live with bacteria. And what we now consider the human body is something called a, a hollow biont. Okay, so we essentially believe that we are like a ship. Our All of our human cells are existing in a ship of bacteria. We have more genetic bacteria that is related to our microbes than we do that is human by the time we are an adult. We're approximately 60% microbial, non-human in terms of our genes, and we're approximately 40% human. And so this ship of microbes is, you know, floating us along in this life of our health. And it it supports our health in every way, shape, and form because every part of our body is colonized with bacteria, right? Your, your right nostril has a different microbial community than your left nostril, your right hand different than your left hand. We do different things and they're exposed to different environments and they play different roles. And so these bacteria just, they keep our body functioning. And, and so of course this ship can be, can be hit by different things in our environment. For example, antibiotics, or when we use antibacterial soaps on our body, when we have high stress levels, when we have certain disease processes, all of these things can impact and damage our, our, micro, our microbiome. And when that happens, it's kind of like a cannon comes and hits the side wall of our ship and we can take on water. Generally, our body and our microbes are pretty good at kind of fixing up the hole and getting back to health and keeping us afloat. But when we are being constantly bombarded or we have a multitude of these cannons hitting us at one time, we can start to take on water and in our, you know, in our health. And that creates this imbalance and can lead to serious disease, serious illness, serious mental health challenges. And, you know, over time, over a lifetime, it can lead to, you know, early things like early death, you know. So we're only now discovering why it's so important to keep this ship afloat and to protect our, our microbes and, you know, like get rid of those antibacterial soaps. One of the things that just uh, is so frustrating to me after the COVID, 19 pandemic is this reliance on antibacterial stuff everywhere because absolutely we need to wash our hands absolutely you know we want to make sure that we take care of ourselves particularly when we're in public spaces but this constant reliance on antibacterial soaps is damaging our healthy microbes as well so be very conscious when and how you're using things and, you know, just a good old hand washing when you, you know, are out heading out of a restaurant and not touching the doorway, you know, can be just as effective as getting in your car and, and pumping in all the antibacterial soap. So, yeah. Yeah. Because the antibacterial soap. My literal <laughs> soap box. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because those, those soaps don't really discriminate on good bacteria versus bad no. bacteria. So very similar to antibiotics, right? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I fear that we, we've just gone a little overboard. Plus, you know, we just have this obsession with, with cleanliness, you know, we, we bathe every day, you know, we don't let our children play in the dirt anymore. We, you know, we're constantly obsessed with how clean everything is. And, you know, we biologically we were never this clean. We lived, we lived out in the environment. We lived out in the dirt. We slept on the dirt. You know, we are meant to interact with the environment. We are meant to come in contact with things like dirt. So, 
you know, it's not a bad thing to let your kids play outside every once in a while and, you know, chew on a little bit of mud. I don't know. I feel like I have two toddler and a preschooler, and I feel like regardless, it gets in their mouth anyway. (laughs) They were eating snow before, like, we got in the car this morning, and I'm just like, what are you doing? As long as it's but not I, yellow snow, right? Yeah, exactly. Which I tell them, we have a we have a dog, so I'm like, please don't eat the yellow snow. Don't eat that, okay? And I think that's such an important thing to bring up too, because I, you probably remember when like the swine flu was like a huge thing as well. And mm-hmm. I remember being in, I think it was like elementary school or middle school when that was a huge thing, and they just put antibacterial soaps in every single classroom and every single restroom outside the doors and things like that. And I remember that actually being a concern. If we're using so much of this soap, like we are killing all the good bacteria, but also I I remember them talking about like, are we going to make the bad bacteria, the really bad bacteria is like stronger is the one that yeah. don't get killed by the... Mm -hmm. the soap like those are just going to come back stronger and better (laughs) yeah and that's exactly what we've done you know it's a it's a very it's a very interesting place that we are existing in here 2023 yeah Yeah, for sure so guys let your kids eat the the snow (laughs) yeah yeah you know have you heard of that concept forest bathing no i have not so this is a thing in in japan there is this concept of forest bathing because many, you know, a large portion of their population lives in cities and they recognize that it's very important to be out in nature. And so they encourage people to go bathing in the forest, which literally just means go for a walk in nature and inhale and exhale and touch the trees and have your feet barefoot on the ground and, you know, you know, look at the flowers and touch the flowers and interact with nature because it it literally changes our microbiome. It changes our stress levels. And and so it's so funny now that there we have to have these concepts because, you know, something that used to be just so normal. Like I, I grew up in the desert, like in a very rural desert. And on weekends, you know, we would we would get up, we'd wash our faces, we'd eat our cereal, we'd get on our bikes, we'd go out in the desert, and we would not be home until we were hungry at night. And you know, we were out there getting dirty, watching animals, you know, hiding in bushes and, and, you know, there's, there's a health to that kind of living when you're just out there existing and touching and being that we don't see a lot of anymore for, for a lot of good reasons. You can't just let your children just run out in the desert anymore. It's a different world today, but it does, it does change our microbiome and it does change our epigenome the way we're living today in homes with lots of lighting, everything's so clean. It just changes things. Yeah, for sure. I like, even though I'm 29, I like to call those the good old days. The good old days, right? (laughs) Trying to get outside and just spend all day outside. I remember that and I, I totally, oh gosh, it's the good old days for sure. What, have you heard of the gut mind connection? Like what role does that play with the microbiome? So, you know, the, the microbes that colonize our gut are doing many, many things, okay? They are, they are protecting that single cell between our gut and our bloodstream, or not necessarily the single cell, but there's a single cell epithelial layer before you get to all of those pieces of the gut that interact between the gut and the bloodstream. So it, it they are protecting that, which creates this layer of mucus that protects the body from having pathogens just directly enter into the bloodstream. And they are also, those microbes are also sending messages out to through something called the vagus nerve. So we have this incredibly amazing nerve that connects our gut to our brain. And it's just a pathway, a messaging pathway, like a freeway. And so these bacteria are constantly sending messages up to the brain and the brain in response is releasing certain hormones, thinking certain thoughts, having certain emotional experiences. And guess what? Those emotional experiences, those hormones are then cross-talking back through the vagus nerve, back to the bacteria. So it's this constant back and forth communication. And so, for example, when we become stressed, what kind of foods do we want to eat? 
right? We, we tend to want comfort foods. That's because when we, our brain is experiencing high levels of stress, things like adrenaline, and we're, you know, the brain then starts to communicate down through the vagus nerve and the bacteria want to calm the brain. So to calm the brain, we want to increase things like have foods and sugars, right? That's just part of our, our makeup. And so our body starts to crave that. We start to eat it. That send messages of which release things like serotonin and dopamine to our brain, but those are quick, short fixes. And pretty soon we get those glucose spikes and glucose drops and we don't feel so great anymore. But that's just one example of how this communication is happening. And why those microbes in our gut are so important to the gut-brain axis is that when you have the bacteria that is biologically created for human being, it positively communicates with the brain. When you have a gut that is filled with non-species-specific bacteria, that have been placed there either through illness or non-species specific foods in our very early days, for example, infant formulas, we get different messaging that goes to our brain. And this really alters our, our hormonal experience as human beings, and it can alter things like our mental health. Wow, that is amazing. It's, it's so cool how our body works and how everything just interacts with each other in almost like this very perfect way to bring in optimal health and how there's such a huge connection between the gut and gut and mind. And I think it's getting more, people are becoming more aware of that gut mind connection and that's yeah. really important. And then when we talk about breast milk, how does that play into all of this then? Yeah. So when babies are born, their guts are awaiting the first bacterial, the, the major first bacterial seeding. There's a lot of there's a lot of scientific debate as to whether babies preceded with some form of their maternal parental bacteria before they're born or not. But the, the first kind of major seeding of the human being is coming through the vaginal canal. And then the next bacterial seeding is that being skin to skin with our mother, our parent, and licking and tasting and you know, having our, our vernix and all of the goop that's on newborn babies interacting with our parents' bacteria. And then the third, and probably, you know, just as critical to the way we are born in terms of our microbiome, is that first food that enters into our gut, which is designed to be colostrum. And in fact, when we look at a sort of on an evolutionary role of what colostrum was, colostrum was not initially an, an early food. When you look at sort of how mammals evolved over time, colostrum initially was protected the desiccation of eggs, right? So then, and so, and then it became this sort of really rich immune property that protect, gave this baby a burst of protection when it left the womb. And that's still what it is today, but we still think of it as a food. And absolutely it has food-like properties, but ultimately those early feeds are immune boosting. And they're also our very first colonization of bacteria. And so when we ingest this bacteria, we are infiltrated. If we ingest our, our mother or parental bacteria or even donor human milk, then we are colonized with bacteria that's meant for humans and bacteria that's actually, if we, we have our own parental milk, bacteria that is meant for us through our kind of genetic history. It's meant for us. And so all those bacteria start to colonize the gut, set up household. And then every time we continue to feed, we have these things called HMOs in our milk. And essentially they're just prebiotics. They're just food for our bacteria. And for the longest time, researchers did not know why we had these HMOs in our milk because babies can't digest them. And they take a lot of energy to make in the human body. So they're like, why would the body spend so much energy making these things? Well, it's because human milk is food for the baby, but it's also food for our bacteria in our gut. So think about it this way. If you have human milk, then you're colonizing the gut with all this human-specific bacteria that's designed to help you throughout your entire life. Those bacteria live with you forever. And if you are then colonized early with infant formula, let's talk about bovine infant formula, right, from a cow, then you are colonized with species-specific bacteria that's designed for a cow. It totally alters the outcome 
of our health. And, you know, right now we don't know, like people are like, well, what if I just had one, one bottle and the rest was human milk? There's still alterations. And I'm not saying that, you know, your child's going to have ill health if they had some infant formula. I'm not saying that at all. We just know that there are changes, right? So, you know, and it just is, it is what it is. So the more that we can kind of share this idea that human milk is designed for human babies and, you know, then the better off we can get to sort of early health outcomes for children and also long-term health outcomes. And I certainly want to come from an equity standpoint. There are, you know, the reality is, is that we have a large percentage of our population in the United States who return to work within two weeks. Setting up breast or chest feeding during that time, exclusive feeding is almost impossible in those scenarios. So it's not going to be possible for many people until we really take a hold of how important early parenting is for parents and we start to invest in parental leave in this country and we really start to invest in early support for breast and chest feeding. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I was a single mom for a very long time and very, very low income. And I was able to breastfeed my kids for about a year longer, but formula did play its role in some of Mm -hmm. my kids because it's just so hard, you know, going to leave your baby for seven, eight, nine, ten hours, and then trying to pump off the job and things like that. So it does come with so many challenges and, and things like that. And I actually worked with WIC as a breastfeeding peer counselor for Mm -hmm. a few years. And one of the things I did tell my parents that I was working with is that, like, even if you're planning on, you know, formula feeding your baby long term, like, and just giving the baby that colostrum, or just until you go back to work, if you can breastfeed your baby, at least until you go back to work, you're still giving so much benefit to your baby, even in that short minute, short amount of time. Absolutely. I'm often asked, like, how, how much how much milk do you really need? How much breast milk, human milk do you really need? And the answer is every ounce is a good ounce. Yep. You know, whether your baby gets one on its first day or whether they're exclusively fed, it's all good. It's all good. You know, so, you know, there's there's no answer to, you know, what is, you know, what is, I you know, what do you have to do to get the most benefit out of it? There, there are critical periods of development for babies. You know, we've got the first 100 days are critical for the baby's gut development in terms of reducing risk of allergies when it comes to human milk. The first 72 hours, we suspect, is a critical period of development for the mucosal lining of the baby's gut where we need, you know, colostrum. So there are stages throughout a child's lifetime that are critical and depending on the type of food that that child is experiencing, it will change health outcomes, you know. And, and we just want to make sure that parents have information, they're armed with information, and then we also help identify support mechanisms for them so that they can realize what they have decided is best for their family. Yeah, absolutely. And I want all my listeners to know that, like, I we present this information not to make anyone feel guilty or anything mm-hmm. like that. We're presenting this information so that you can make that informed feeding choice. But also, you don't know what you don't know. So it's important to, you know, get all the facts that you can about, you know, the important benefits and the important risks of any feeding choice that you do, and that you guys are armed with that information so you can make the best choice for your family. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Yeah. So in saying that, what are some of the risks of not introducing breast milk to the infant? Well, so I guess it all depends on timing, right? Mm -hmm. So if a baby doesn't experience colostrum in its early days during that critical gut development, what happens is that the baby's gut is then colonized primarily pathogenic bacteria. And And while there still can be lactobacillus, you know, and bifidophilus that are in the infant's gut, what happens is those pathogenic bacteria are used to being fed now by infant formula. And so as we continue to feed them, then they, their colonies just get larger and larger in our baby's gut. And so eventually we have this imbalance of pathogenic, you know, bacteria to good bacteria. And, and again, this can cause health outcomes, both in terms of mental health outcomes because we get those changes in hormonal communication between the gut brain axis. 
but it can also increase risks of things like diabetes and respiratory illnesses and a whole host of illness can, can occur when we don't have that sort of setup, that important microbial setup as a newborn. So that that's primary, that's the biggest answer is that if we don't set up a healthy microbiome, we have epigenetic outcomes that does change our long-term, short-term and long-term health outcomes. Yeah. And I, sometimes when I'm talking to my parents, we know that community support is so important when we're talking about supporting a mom and breastfeeding, but we have generations and generations and generations of mothers who have never breastfed. So when we have such three, four or five generations that have never breastfed, how does that play a role in like future epigenetics with the infants and their families? Yeah, so we we can see, so epigenetics is again, another very young and emerging field, but we are finding that there are certain that there are certain genetically activated outcomes that are truly epigenetic. And in order for something to be a truly inherited epigenetic influence, so when you think of someone who is pregnant and let's say someone smokes, right? Tobacco. So you've got the influence on the parent from the carcinogens you know, from the smoke impacting her epigenome, you have the baby. So through the placenta, the, you know, carcinogens are interacting with that baby's epigenome. And then you also have the, the either sperm or eggs that are developing inside that little fetus as well. So you have three generations right there being impacted by the environment of that pregnant person. And so in order for that influence to be truly epigenetic, it would have to last through those, that baby's baby babies, right? So it would have to go to the grand baby, not the grand baby, the great grand baby, four generations out. It'd have to go four generations out because you have to have, there's that exposure. It has to go one generation beyond. And so what that means in terms of answering your question is that we don't exactly know because we've only really been studying epigenetics now for about 25 years. And so that doesn't give us enough time historically to look four generations out. We have suspicions when we look at other animal models of things that have this epigenetic interplay from human milk and things that we absolutely know that we see within one generation are things like diabetes, the risk of diabetes type one, the risk of Crohn's disease, you know, the risk of irritable bowel disease, you know, these are things we know we have increased risk of through the epigenetics, but do we know whether it is an epigenetic inheritance goes to the next generation, the next, we don't quite know all of that just yet. Okay. So this is pretty new and emerging and we definitely need several more decades of research to really start answering those questions but Mm -hmm. it sounds like we have a good idea that there might be some kind of impact on future generations so yeah and you know we are also in this amazing time where there's technology like CRISPR where you can go in and you can alter genes right so we may get to the point in the next five to ten years where we can alter even inherited epigenetic traits through things like CRISPR. So, but first we have to discover exactly what is epigenetically inherited and to what degree and what all the things are that influence it. So it's a very exciting time in the field of epigenetics and the microbiome, just an incredibly exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to see where this goes and oh gosh, the research that is coming out of all of this is just so fascinating. And it's, again, so cool how our body works. And so you, earlier you had mentioned, you know, that you had a C-section with your baby and, and all those kind of different things and your baby didn't get the first milk. How, if a mom does have a C-section, what role can breast milk play in helping the microbiome and, and things like that? Sure. So, so can I talk a little bit about artificial seeding with cesarean? Okay. So if a baby is delivered 
surgically, then they don't get to go through the vaginal canal and pick up their parental bacteria. But what's most important is they don't pick up that perineal bacteria as they're exiting. So there's a little bit of pathogenic bacteria there as well as some really healthy vaginal bacteria. And that those few little pathogenic bacteria cause the healthy bacteria to just kind of bloom in response. Like, oh, there's some baddies here. We need to really take over. So you get this kind of really healthy bloom of flora all over the baby's body. And then it goes, you know, skin to skin and picks up the family microbes. And then it hopefully, ideally, that baby will take in its parents' milk. So, you know, you're missing one of those really important steps with surgery. So what researchers are doing right now is looking at the possibility of the benefits of artificial seeding. So there's a variety of ways to do artificial seeding. So Maria Bello is someone who has done a ton of research in this area. And um, she looked at, they actually very, you know, they screened the mothers to make sure they didn't have pathogenic bacteria in their vagina, things like strep, positive strep B. And so they came across this group that had passed, you know, all of these different tests and they were allowed to, they put a, you know, cotton swab material up inside the vaginal canal. And then when the baby was born, they did seeding in the baby's nose and mouth and wiped down the baby. And what they found was that one year later, those babies had a very similar microbiome to the babies who were born vaginally. Now, unfortunately, what we also see though, is that while they had a similar outcome, what we know does not get transferred is bacteria rides when we do that external seeding that way. And bacteria rides are actually pretty important when we look at things like, like how our body processes fats and things of that nature. So they're also very important. So another research group looked at, well, how else can we transfer this kind of bacteria? And so one of the things that they did was they did fecal transplants. They basically gave the babies poop pills, right? Yum, yum. <laughs> As a new baby, you get to have poop. But what they found was that it only took seven days, not a whole year, for the microbiome to, you know, to balance out. But what we also know is that there are just as many studies that have also looked at just babies that then get exclusively human milk fed. And they found that over time, they have very, very similar outcomes to babies that were born vaginally and are human milk fed. So, so breastfeed is one of those kind of interventions for cesarean section. It's a healthy intervention. And in absence of that, you know, we can look at external seeding with swabbing. We can look at fecal transplants. You know, unfortunately, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists is not fully on board yet with external seeding. And that's because there, there can be pathogenic microbes that you might transfer to a newborn baby. We just don't know a lot right now. So they suggest that none of that's done unless it's done within a research, you know, a research study where it can be, you know, controlled and studied. But I'll tell you a lot of hospitals around the, you know, across the country and internationally are now doing external seeding just kind of as a standard, particularly if it's a baby friendly hospital and they're getting very, very positive outcomes. So. Awesome. Did that answer your question? I feel like I went (laughs) all around the world there. (laughs) That was no, that was awesome. That was really great. And yeah, that answered the question wonderfully. So, you know, if a mom is having a C section, she can know that there are some ways that she can, you know, still play a part in the baby's microbiome and making sure Mm -hmm. that they're getting the microbes that they need. Also, I don't know if you know who Dr. Neil Bergman is. I um, love him. He is <laughs> awesome. Yes. I, I took his training as a kangaroo and he, mm-hmm. his, his, him and his wife are amazing. But something else that he actually suggested was bringing a blanket from home to introduce mm. some of the microbes from home and bringing that to a baby. So you can do that even, even C-section during a C-section and also vaginal, vaginal delivery to kind of introduce those microbes, which I thought was awesome. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's a great idea. Yes. That's a great yes. idea. Yeah. So that's definitely like, there's some options here. And do you think, you know, just like if parents that are listening to this, if they wanted to advocate for something like that, that, you know, that's totally possible to advocate for like vaginal seeding and things like that. You know, it, it absolutely is, but the 
if a hospital's not already doing it, mm-hmm. it might be a hard sell, but they certainly can, you know, download the studies that show um, that show information about it. There are plenty of there are plenty of videos now that you can find that they can share with their practitioner and see if they were willing. So it really depends on where that family lives, you know, what kind of access they may have to to those those sorts of things. And, you know, of course, whether they're having hospital birth or, you know, birth center birth, but with a birth center birth, obviously they would be transferred to to the hospital if they had a had a cesarean. But that might influence, you know, because if they're having a birth center birth and then they're going to the hospital for a cesarean, it may be emergent. So things mm-hmm. may, you know, we, we also have to be very flexible in knowing that there are certain outcomes that make things like seating, external seating more possible than others. Mm-hmm. So our flexibility has to be, you know, as a, as a person giving birth to a child has to also be flexible. And we have to realize that there are a multitude of ways, as you mentioned too, like the blank, the blanket, a multitude of ways that we can positively influence that microbiome like feeding our baby our own milk so absolutely and and i know in my area this is something that we're really trying to get on board too in the or room is skin to skin because we know Mm -hmm. that skin to skin definitely has a role in the epigenetics and microbiome of babies so there's a there's another option for all those parents are out there our area is not yet (laughs) we're getting there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and I and I, I want to also address the skin to skin thing because a lot of nursing staff are taught and in fact, you know, OBGYNs and even midwives are taught about the golden hour and how important the golden hour, you know, that first hour after birth, how important it is to get that baby skin to skin and get that baby, you know, latched and feeding. And and that is true. That's a very important period of time. But unfortunately, I think what has been what has been shared is sort of it, and in the in the way that it's been shared is this concept that it only needs to be done for an hour, right? We only need to do skin to skin for an hour in that golden hour. And that's absolutely not what needs to happen. I like to think of like the golden six weeks because we should be bringing that baby skin to skin as often as we possibly can, you know, it, it, every feeding if we possibly can. I mean, that that may not be, you know, possible. Like you may be at the mall and may not want to completely get on skin to skin right there. But, you know, as often as you possibly can, there are benefits to continuing that skin to skin with the infant, whether or not even they're feeding. And that's one of the things that like when parents are transitioning back to to work, why we love the concept of baby mooning is that you know, on if they work on a Monday, the Sunday, they should, you know, stay in bed with their baby as much as they can, be naked, be skin to skin with the baby, nap, feed, take care of yourself, you know. And yeah, yeah. So that's that's just another that's a little thing I like to share is like try honor the golden hour, but make sure that people understand that it's not a stopping point. Yes. Absolutely that's so, so, so important. And Dr. Neal's work talks a lot, a lot, a lot about the impact on, of skin to skin on babies' neurological health. And it's, mm-hmm. I almost feel like skin to skin is underplayed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we, we talk about like, yeah, it's good for them, but we don't, we don't really go into like how important it is for, for the infant, how important skin to skin is. So. Yeah. And, and for connection for everyone in the family, like it's yeah. really important for you know, fathers to be skin to skin with their children. We now know, as I'm sure you know from taking Dr. Bergman's training, that the more skin to skin time that a father has with their baby, the more interactive they are with them the rest of their life. They have a different emotional experience with that child because they release higher levels of vasopressin, you know, in response to that, which is a bonding hormone primarily in those who um, are assigned male at birth, you know, we have it somewhat for those who are assigned female at birth, but it, it is, it's a really important hormone as well as oxytocin and who doesn't love oxytocin? Gotta love oxytocin, (laughs) right? Yeah. That's so, that's so amazing. And you also had mentioned earlier about like mental health in the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And are you able to kind of talk a little bit more about how the microbiome impacts mental health and how maybe breast milk can play a role in that. 
Sure. So we have something called the enteric nervous system and, or our ENS system. And that's essentially the brain that's inside our gut. So we have all these neurons that are lining our gut system. And these neurons, like one of their roles is, you know, very, very rudimentary. They control peristalsis and enzymatic action. So essentially they help your food get from your mouth to your gut, you know, cause everything to move down, down, down. And once it gets there, release the enzymes and, and start that process of digestion. But the other thing that these neurons do is they're reacting to the mood neurotransmitters that bacteria are releasing within the gut. And remember, depending on the type of food that's entering the gut, whether it's human milk or bovine milk or plant milk as well, right? you're gonna get different bacterial communities releasing different types of mood transmitters. So the microbiome is communicating through our ENS, our enteric nervous system, back and forth through that vagus nerve system. And what we know about our milk is that it's neurotrophic. And what that means is that our milk interacts with those neurons. It increases the enteric neurons in our gut, so it makes our gut more of a thinking, feeling gut, which is super important for us as human beings who rely on emotional constructs throughout the rest of our life. Like we are emotional beings and, it, you know, we, we can survive our entire life without hugs and love and all that kind of stuff, but we never thrive. And that's because we are emotional beings. And the other thing that our milk does is it increases our glial cells as well. So when we have human milk kind of creating this healthy lining of our gut that we talked earlier, which improves our immune function. It, it, you know, creates these healthy, positive, proactive brain bacteria in our gut, but then we're also creating this healthy neural system in our gut that leads to better mental health throughout a lifetime. And partly that's because then we're set up with bacteria that promote our happy hormones, things like dopamine and serotonin help them to stay balanced. Yeah. Wow. That, that's it really in a nutshell. Cool. Well, breast milk, breast milk is definitely very, very cool. And how it just really impacts all the systems of the body and things like that. So mm -hmm. we've talked about all these different things. We've talked about how, you know, breast milk has just plays this important role in like our the long-term health of babies. And I want to know, like, how can mothers be best supported in giving their babies milk? So I think it starts very early on. I mean, mm -hmm. to be honest, I think that it starts in, in school. I think that we need to normalize parents' breast and chest feeding. You know, like seeing parents actually feed babies is in public is the first place it starts, including, you know, including the process of birth and early feeding in anatomy classes for, you know, children who are in middle school and high school, having childbirth educators come in and talk about the normalcy of how we feed babies that, you know, our body is not only nourishing and growing a baby in utero, but the body is preparing to continue to feed that baby for two to five years or beyond even with the mammary glands. It's developing the mammary glands to support that baby's development and grow it outside of the womb. So I think it really starts there. This knowledge that it's normal, that it's important, and it's a normal bodily function. Because I used to teach, go down and do a little section on like birth and birth and breastfeeding to high school groups. And I was often so profound, at the beginning, I was profoundly surprised by how many young people did not even know that we made milk for babies. Like they, they did not know. They're like, ah, breast milk. They didn't even know. And, and some of them would say like gross, like cows, you know, and like, yes, we're all mammals. And that's what a mammal is. Someone that, you know, can feed their baby externally after they're born. So, you know, I think it starts there. And then the next phase is making sure that parents have prenatal education, that they're, midwife or their healthcare provider is providing them with consistent information on lactation every single visit. In fact, the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative has a plan of education for healthcare providers in the prenatal period, information that should happen at each stage during pregnancy. That needs to happen so that parents understand and have the tools to feed their baby. 
But the other thing is that, that I think a big piece that we're missing, we're doing pretty good on providing lactation classes and things like that in pregnancy. But what is missing is addressing parents' fears and real barriers while they're pregnant. Because once the baby's here, it's too late to address those things. You know, if we know they're returning to work at four weeks and they're going to be at at a workplace where there's no place to pump. I mean, thank goodness we have the Pump Act right now that's going to protect families. However, there's still going to be some parents that are going to fall through the cracks there. And so I think that it's that there are these stages of importance in terms of how do we really support families. And then again, we've got to get political. I mean, I don't want to get political, but we have to get political because we have got to protect parents and encourage parental leave because it is a necessity for exclusive breast and chest feeding. It's, it's, it's essential, you know, that parents are, are, have that opportunity to establish feeding with their children and have the time to provide the milk for them. So yeah, that's, that's what I, that's my kind of take on it. <laughs> Love it. That's awesome. And even like when you were talking about like starting so young, that is so important because one of the things like when I teach my childbirth education classes, I tell, I tell them, I'm like, when we when are growing up, when we were watching babies being fed on television, mm-hmm. when we get a baby doll from the store, how right. are we feeding them? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I I love that, Angel. I I mean, right as you were saying that, I was thinking about when I was a little girl, I had a baby alive. Yeah. And and it was a little bottle and it would go nom, 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 you know, and the milk would like look like it was coming out of the bottle. And and my little niece, she just had a little baby niece. So she's like two years old. And her her mom just sent me a picture of her feeding her baby doll with her shirt lifted up and had the baby doll attached to her nipple. And I'm like, yes, this is when it starts. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, so I have five and number six is coming. But like my kids are like, like, oh, mom, give the baby a boob. And like, I've had my girls grab my pumps and like pretend pump for, mm-hmm. and I've had them feed their babies. And I remember like, they'll come up to me and be like, Hey, mommy here, feed my baby. <laughs> but it really does start so young because we've been, the formula companies have done an amazing job at marketing. I, whoever yes. does their marketing <laughs> mm-hmm. is on board, but this, our society has normalized feeding and it's through a bottle and normally it's through using formula and things like that and that's just that's just how we grew up and things like that so starting young and yes childbirth education like all of that like none of that is in our our health education not from when I was in high school and it probably isn't now so I'm really glad that you brought that up and if any teachers are listening <laughs> exactly we we think the image of a bottle is is innocuous and yeah. you know doesn't mean anything but it does it you know you see a bottle and you think baby right you right. because it, it's it's so in it's so the way we consider how to feed a baby is is a bottle uh, you know I was looking back at I have you know, my mom gave me my baby book from when I was a little baby a couple Christmases ago. And it had, you know, like my birth announcements and there are little baby bottles all over it. You know, even though my mom breastfed me, but that was just, that was the image of the time that you associated with babies was bottles. So we need to change. We need to change that. Yeah, absolutely. And what, so what's your advice to healthcare professionals and any allied healthcare professionals in regards to supporting the microbiome and breastfeeding and and the parents take classes on lactation <laughs> you know i mean it's pretty insane to me the world health organization you know has created all these standards for practitioners and with the baby friendly hospital initiative they require they require any staff that interacts directly with parents right after birth postpartum non practitioners like like the the nursing staff or anyone who's on the postpartum unit that they get at least 20 hours of lactation specific training, but they're only requiring three hours for healthcare providers, but healthcare providers have a 10 month relationship most of the time with these mothers and parents. And, you know, they need the 20 plus hours of lactation 
in many of them don't consider breastfeeding to be their purview, their job, because they kind of feel like, oh, the baby's born and then it's on to the pediatrician. But it's just as important for healthcare providers to be sharing that lactation information throughout pregnancy. And then pediatricians also see, unfortunately, the lactation information that most pediatricians receive comes from infant formula reps and comes from conferences that are sponsored by infant formula. And so the information they get is skewed, unfortunately. And that needs to change. We need, again, to get political, we need to abide by, you know, the WHO code that we've already signed onto, the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes. We need protections, legal protections in place to prevent these kind of things from happening. We need some teeth into that signatory, which we have not done as of yet. So those are some of the things that I think need to happen. More and more and more education. And all of us, this is the other thing, is people like doulas, postpartum doulas, childbirth educators, we kind of see ourselves in this like circle outside of healthcare providers. Like we're not connected. But we are so connected. We need to be networking with them. We need to develop positive relationships with them. We need to be having coffee with them or tea, you know, depending on what you like. But we need to be interacting with them so that we're all information sharing. We should not be in these silos. You know, we should be learning from them just as they should be learning from us. So there you go. <laughs> I, I love that. Yes, applaud. I really need an applaud button. It <laughs> <laughs> spit my water out. <laughs> yeah, that's so amazing. And I, I have an episode with Dr. Jack Newman, and he came out with this book called What Doctors Don't Know About Breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And fantastic book. And I think every healthcare professional should definitely get their hands on it. But the education is so vital. I Like why pediatricians who are going to be taking care of these kids for years have don't have in-depth education on breastfeeding is it's it's horrible like it doesn't make any sense right (laughs) it doesn't make any sense at all exactly yeah 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 so getting that education and yes having you know the healthcare professional and the allied healthcare professionals our doulas our childbirth educators even our chiropractors and massage therapists because we all have hands in in the woman's life at some point or in the family's life at some point like we need to come together and really you know share and exchange information so that's so important and and anyone who's listening to i'm going to put the link to the microbiome course so that if you're interested in learning more about the microbiome course and you guys are able to look into that and get that education. And I also have a couple of courses myself. I have one called Gut Reaction, and then I have another one on epigenetics, and they can visit my website at motherjourney.com as well. Perfect, perfect. Well, Laurel, it's been so much fun talking with you. I've had such a good time. It's been so fun, Angel. Thank you for inviting me. I'd love to chat with you anytime. And and I want to say thank you to you know, all of your listeners for educating themselves and, you know, investing in their family and their practice. It's, it's a really positive thing for our, for our universe. So. Yes, absolutely. So you guys, I will be putting Laurel's information in the show notes so you guys can grab that, her Instagram, Facebook, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes. So you guys can take a look at that. And if you want to go further into the education, you guys are able to do that. So Laurel, thank you again. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for all the information that you're sharing out here and, you know, the birth, you're an inspiration. So thank you. (laughs) And for all my listeners, I'm so glad that you guys were able to tune in today and I can't wait to join you guys in the next episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode, but remember our journey together is far from its conclusion. Ensure you tap that notification bell to stay in the loop about upcoming episodes. Don't forget the valuable resources waiting for you in the podcast description. Also, do you love this podcast? Show your love by leaving a stellar five-star review, spreading the word across your social circles, or even becoming a listener supporter, contributing financially to sustain this podcast's existence. If a specific topic tickles your fancy or you aspire to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to submit your ideas via the link in the podcast description. And to all you incredible women who are expecting or planning to conceive, 
I'm well aware that fears around childbirth can be overwhelming. From concerns about hospital procedures to coping mechanisms during labor, I've got your back. What's even better is that you can now access your free guide on mastering five techniques to conquer the fear of birth. As a bonus, discover a collection of mindfulness tools curated to quell anxiety and fear during pregnancy and childbirth. The guide's link awaits you in the podcast description. Live long, loud, and in prosperity, dear members of the Rebel Birth crew. Until we cross paths again, thrive unapologetically.